Well, I have a note I wrote, and I'm trying to determine if I should send it or wait to send it. It's been a long time coming. The tide is turning. We tired of running. We rising up. It's been a long time coming. They proud is hurting. Shake off that burden. Gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Raj Nation Innovations Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, aka the Raj Nation. I am your show's host. I am the founder of Raj Nation Innovation, a hip hop artist and a yoga instructor. Above all else, I am a storyteller. I am joined by my co host, Victoria Cohen, aka VC Money. Victoria is the voice behind Almonds and Asana. She's a yoga instructor, a blogger, a health, wellness, and fitness enthusiast. Above all else, she is an activist. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, startup founders, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help creative thinkers like you and I better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. It's real talk with real people doing real big things to show you the real side of success. In this episode, we welcome back to the show Professor Patrick Murphy. If you dial it all the way back to Season 1, Episode 7, Patrick Murphy was one of the first guests we ever had on the show. We've got him back on now to talk about a completely new topic, and that is, how do you improve your learning curve? Before we dive into that conversation, I'd like to send you an invitation. If you're not a member already, go to www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Enter your email address there to join our tribe. You will never miss another episode of this show. Every Monday when a new episode comes out, you'll get an email in your inbox and be in touch, in tune, with all of the awesome. All right, let's dive in now to our conversation with Professor Patrick Murphy. How do you improve your learning curve? Let's listen in. I think today people need to rediscover the power of curiosity. Um, Curiosity is the cure for boredom. Curiosity is what um, I find makes entrepreneurs um, succeed versus fail. Like almost down to the level where um, people have a, a passion for asking questions. A learning curve grows or it flattens out based on the questions that you that you ask about the world around you. And I find that people who are comfortable going to sleep at night with large unanswered questions tend to have learning curves that keep growing and evolving compared to, for example, people who are more comfortable going to sleep at night with large unquestioned answers. And that's an important distinction that we all kind of understand when you hear me say it, but we don't really talk about a lot um, because people are comfortable when they know how the story ends or how the movie finishes um, or they know what their path forward is going to be. There's a certain comfort associated with that, but you have to understand that you don't go back and read books again generally. Sometimes you do, but after you've read it, that's it. Or a movie, maybe you'll go back and watch it again, but often you don't do that. And if you know what path you're going to take, a certain part of your mind closes down. And so 
challenging yourself to have a couple of questions in front of you that are big and unanswered at all times is a good way to stay hungry and to keep growing and to move you out of your comfort zone. And all of that sort of approach to living your life and uh, undertaking your work is how we learn. So interesting. I just suddenly had like a million ideas. <laughs> because right before this, I was thinking learning curve, like, you know, where, where exactly are we going with this? And I, I, I think what's, what came to mind first and sort of what you just said, what that sort of sparked in me is that, you know, careers of past generations, people did one thing forever. So they learned it. There was a learning curve maybe at the beginning and then they knew what they were doing and they did that forever. But nowadays with so many people constantly reinventing themselves and constantly changing careers as we probably both have multiple mm -hmm. times now in our short time in the working world, you, you have to keep, you have to figure out as we're going to discuss probably how to, to change your learning curve or how to, how to run with it or how to be comfortable with it because we constantly keep pivoting. And I think that's what that just brought to mind for me is that, um, the difference of what careers used to look like of probably having that learning curve in the beginning and then settling into something and sort of being an expert for a really long time, as opposed to maybe now it being a little bit different. Mm -hmm. We live in a world today in which we are embedded in an empirical universe of knowledge and ideas. It is a whirlwind of activity all around us. And a lot of that is driven by the ease with which we can access information today through technology and tap into stores of information that are online. But more importantly, I think the real power of um, technology is its social component. We can access knowledge carried by other people who are very far away from us, whereas in, the, in earlier prior generations, we weren't able to do that in the same way. And that, that empirical whirlwind, as I call it, of knowledge and ideas that is surrounding us is going to look like a confusing array of stimuli unless as an individual you have a logic or a model or an approach for engaging that and learning how to separate what's meaningful from what's not meaningful and how to just find out what you should attend to and what you shouldn't. And the curiosity piece that I mentioned earlier is the logic for approaching that because these, these questions that you pose about the world, they have a way of coordinating your activity and eventually you discover uh, something new that you didn't come upon before based on an interesting question that you asked. And so uh, for me, learning and growing has everything to do with curiosity, as it always has, to be sure. But I think it's even more important today. Um, however, as I said, it's, it's so easy for individuals now to become very, very sheep-like in how they approach things and how they view the world. Many people are very comfortable being told what to do and how to conduct their lives. And, and a lot of people fall into that uh, mode of living and working. And it is human nature to an extent to look for stability. It, it truly is. Um, that's how we function in communities and, and families. And that's a large part of how we grow. But there needs to be an element of discomfort, an element of unanswered questions about the world at all times in our lives if we really want to keep learning and growing. And for, for entrepreneurs in particular, that, that's really important, the, the power of unanswered questions to coordinate and motivate and stimulate 
activity. It's important for leaders to continually remind the people working in their organizations to keep that spirit alive. And as a, as a professor, as a teacher like I am, I'm constantly posing questions to students. It's a great way to engage the mind. Um, I find that when you give a lot of answers to people, the mind shuts down. But when you give uh, questions, the mind tends to wake up. And I think all of that is very much related to this learning curve notion that we're yeah. talking about. So it's interesting because just prior to this, I was giving uh, my personal branding presentation at a co-working space here in Chicago. And part of that presentation, you know, like, like I always open up, I'm like, okay, what do, you, like, what do you think about when you think personal branding and people shout out like, oh, Twitter, et cetera. And I'm just like, not yet. Like really a personal brand at the end of the day is about like, how do you, like, what do you think about yourself? And then how do you put that thought out into the world for other people? So it starts way before what are you tweeting? It starts with like self analysis and things of that nature. And I'll get to a part where I, I ask them, I, I talk about understanding what is your background. Uh, and the only way you can really understand your real background is to ask yourself deep questions. So I'll be like, all right, how many of you can tell me the city where you were born or where city where you grew up? Everyone raises their hand. How many of you can tell me where you went to college? Everyone raises their hand. And I'll say, how many of you can tell me a specific memory from college that every time you think about it, that's the memory that's, that makes you smile and is your best memory and who is involved and what does that say about you? And like, no, well, maybe one person will raise their hand and I'll be like, how many of you can say, if 60 Minutes were to run a feature on you in 20 years, what would you be doing and what cool thing would they be saying about you? And then no one will raise their hand. And then I'll be like, all right, how many of you can tell me like, what do you want to be remembered for? Or like, what do you want your eulogy to say? And people don't raise their hand for those things. And I'm like, exactly. And it's not to call you out. It's to say that these are the questions we need to be asking ourselves in order to grow and to understand, really understand who we are and how we see the world. And I think the reason that we don't default to asking those questions of ourselves is because people don't ask those questions to us on a normal basis. Like any networking event you go to, what do they ask? What do you do? Right? And that's, you don't really get beneath that surface. And therefore, it's tough to take it upon yourself to ask, ask these questions and get deeper and be naturally curious because the, you mentioned like people being more sheepish and I think it's a product of the environment where if the environment isn't consistently challenging and pushing you, then you naturally can fall into the complacency and the ability to just accept things as they are as opposed to challenge the norm or ask, you know, why not? Or ask, ask why it is. One of the great paradoxes of human existence is that the key to dealing with uncertainty or change, external uncertainty or change, is a changeless sense of who you are as an individual. And so these self-directed, inwardly oriented questions that you're talking about, through that kind of introspective process, people learn to feel their own values and they learn their own limits. They discover talents that they didn't know they had. They discover things they're passionate about that they didn't know they were passionate about. And once a person learns that those elements of their own self and they have a kind of self-awareness, that adds a kind of uncertainty, or rather that adds a kind of uh, certainty to how they can engage the world. Because now they 
follow certain paths that they wouldn't follow before. They ignore, they know to ignore certain things because it doesn't play to their strengths. They have a kind of uh, boldness behind their action because if it's something that they're passionate about or care about, there's a certain um, uh, bravery almost that will make you stand up and take a risk in the name of that thing because you, you get a sense of something larger than yourself. And I, so therefore I think the questions that people need to ask as they learn about the world, they should be outwardly directed and they should address problems in the environment, but they should also be private affairs in which they look inward and think about who they are, what they stand for, and what they care about. Now, that's what a good university education, especially a liberal arts um, university education, is designed to do. Um, it's really a process of an individual learning about who they are and who they are not. And so by the time they graduate, they should have a sense of what path they want to take in the world. But it's easy when we're um, submerged, embedded, entangled in this whirlwind of information around us to forget about our own selves. You can lose yourself to the uh, storm around you. And so what I do when I teach and what I do when I, when I work with people who come to meet me, I take a lot of time to ask the kind of questions you just mentioned in terms of, um, well, what do you care about and what are you willing to take a major risk for? And I think when people make those discoveries about themselves, they can, they can do a lot in terms of uh, learning about the world in a way that will play to their own strengths. And then they can do anything with that. They can build a career, they can, they can build a life, they can serve others, and they can really um, be their best. Rather than, rather than letting someone else tell them what they should be doing, figuring that out for themselves and then going out and acting in accordance with that has a lot to do with um, building your learning curve. And the kind of the, the, the formal education setting piece of this is where I start to take issue with the sense of not the, 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 the setting itself. So you imagine like a, a good liberal arts institution should be asking these questions, right? It should be probing. It should be helping you figure out who you are and who you are not. The issue then is that it's two things. One, a lot of times on the university side, it's you have people who are hired into the system, teachers, professors, etc., who are not necessarily concerned about those things. And they're more just like, let me just get these students through this material and through this semester or whatever. And then almost more so on the student side, is the approach to learning needs to drastically change. And I say that for the reason that, um, so when I was at DePaul as a student, um, I, if it was a class that I cared about, I always kind of said to myself, I would rather get a B or a C and learn something than get an A and do nothing and, and learn nothing. And naturally what happens is if you do learn something, you end up getting the A, so I got pretty good grades. But the idea was that like, like that extrapolates to like how many students just cram for something the night before a test, which isn't actually learning the information. It's memorizing something for the sake of passing, you know, getting past one hurdle, it. right, regurgitating <laughs> it. And then the second you walk out of the room when the exam is done, you've pretty much forgotten everything because the mindset going in is not, for a lot of people, it's not a learning mindset. It is a, um, it is a, 
it's a, a causal mindset, basically. Like, if this, then that. If I study tonight, I will get an A tomorrow. And so it's so closely tied to like the carrot, the reward at the end, that we forget what are we even trying to get that carrot for? Because it's not about the grade, right? And again, I think the grade naturally happens. Getting getting good, getting A's and all that stuff happens naturally if you actually take it upon yourself to, to learn and embed the material. Well, and I think I'm just, you know, because now that we're a few, a number of years out of college and I feel like I have a lot of friends that are, you know, doing MBAs or that are thinking about doing MBAs or maybe they've even already completed it. You so often hear people say, well, it's just a box I need to check. So I got to do it uh-huh. as opposed <laughs> to the mentality. Like I'm so curious to learn more about, you know, this part of the business that I want to go into or, or pivot or whatever so much, especially, you know, working in, in a very corporate environment, which I used to where in a lot of parts of that company, you, you needed to have an MBA to be able to move on. And it was very much regarded as you got to check the box and go do it as opposed to like, we really care about what you're learning. And then the, the person doesn't, you know, care as much. So I think I mean, that continues on. Universities face a very interesting challenge these days. Um, the, the education industry has corporatized in certain ways. Um, there are revenues, there are costs, there are operations, there's competition in the environment and, and so forth. Um, but at their heart, universities are not businesses. They are part of um, over a thousand years of tradition in the Western world in which individuals come in and discover who they truly are already before they get there, which is what we talked about a little bit earlier. There's, um, you know, we like to say in in the Western style of education that um, theory without practice is pointless, but practice without theory is blind. And you could unpack that a little bit to think in terms of the, like we were saying earlier with the empirical whirlwind of information around us, if you don't have a logic or a framework to navigate that, you're blind or you're lost. But the other side of that coin is that if you have a really good conceptual understanding of something, the architecture of something or how something is designed or you understand a a language, let's say, but you never use that information, it's kind of um, pointless. And so the the balance, uh, the rub, as it were, for education is how to straddle both sides of that because a very practice-oriented education is valuable to people who might want to pay for an education because it will teach them things that they can do to improve their careers. But at the same time, if a university loses the underlying conceptual, theoretic, rigorous, scholarly approach to understanding the world, the university loses its soul. And then you're going to be no different than any other uh, peddler or you know commodity seller that might be offering something that just anybody else can offer. And the way I like to think about this, I've I've been a professor for 15 years now, is I I really look back to how and why all of this started. There's some basic principles that drive academia in the West that I think we are at risk of losing touch with and it would it would behoove us to reflect back on what the real purpose of all of this is one of them for example which probably most of your listeners and you guys have heard of what's called the socratic method but they 
don't, many people, most people I would say, don't understand why that method of teaching works. And the reason it works is because of a basic underlying assumption that the ancient Greeks held about the character of knowledge. And that assumption was that everything you need to know about the world and about your life is already in you. It's imprinted in you at the time you're born. And your life is a process of becoming. It is a process of evolution. And if you think about what evolution means, the root word is evolve. Most people don't know what evolve really means. Evolve means to unroll something. And when you unroll something, that implies that what is inside there, it's already there. It just isn't revealed yet. And so the process of becoming as a human, as an individual growing in the world, is this process of evolution in which the knowledge and the gifts that you have are already there inside you. Therefore, the teacher's task is to call that, is to bring that knowledge out. And how do you do that? You do that through asking questions. And if you are a good enough teacher, you will ask the right questions of the student who will then discover strengths they didn't know they had. And that knowledge that is already in there will have a, have a method or a, a means of coming out. Now, uh, Plato wrote about this in uh, the book is called The Meno, and he's writing about his teacher Socrates, as he always did, these, these dialogues between the... Um, between is this the five dialogues, or is this separate from them? The, this, is, this is a different one, but, but in, in The Meno, he, he wrote about the uh, slave boy episode, as, it, as he called it. Socrates is on the street, there's a poor homeless boy at the side of the street, and to demonstrate this method that I'm talking about, he went to the boy and gave him a stick and then had the boy solve a rather complicated geometric proof by drawing in the dirt on the side of the road. And the young boy did it merely in the, through the process of answering um, Socrates' questions put to him. And so through the questions, the boy was able to perform with very advanced knowledge and Socrates said, according to Plato, see? The knowledge was in him. He just needed the right cues to get the knowledge out. And so fast forward to today, um, teachers and professors who really try to use that have a bottom line assumption that we don't really think about or even know about consciously. But the idea is that in the diversity in a classroom, there's a diversity of knowledge and gifts in there. And by asking the right questions, individuals will discover a certain timeless piece of knowledge or information that they carry with them. And you have to unlock that as a teacher. This maps on to, you know, like, like, like Plato would write about the, the world of forms, right? Everyone knows what a perfect circle is, even though there is no perfect circle in the world. And there never has been because some element of it, if you go down to a small enough scale is mm. imperfect, but we still know in theory what a perfect circle is. Well, that perfect circle exists in this world of forms and it, it can be applied to chairs or tables. They're all different. All practical instances of the, these physical objects are different from one another. There's variance across them, which is a kind of error, but somewhere in our minds, there's, a, there's an essential form and there's no chair or table in the world that models that perfectly, but we know what it is. That's the timeless element. That's the timeless aspect of knowledge that we try to go for in, in, in our tradition of education in the world here. And 
it's all based on questions. And that, that's how we learn and grow. So then you said it's on an educator to ask the right questions. How do you know if you are asking the right questions? Xenophanes, Xenophanes, I believe that's his name, X-E-N-O-P-H-A-N-E-S, said, you know, humanity can never know the ultimate truth, this world of form, forms. Even if you uttered the perfect truth, you wouldn't know you just uttered it. It's all a woven web of guesses. So there is no way to know with certainty. Um, you can try and keep trying, and even if you hit it perfectly, you won't know that you did it. That doesn't mean that perfect world of knowledge doesn't exist. Um, we can know it in like, like shadows on the cave wall, which was another metaphor that was used to talk about it. Even though you never see it directly, you can infer what it might be. And you can only do that through an endless struggle and process of questioning as we learn and grow through trial and error and experimentation. But, but you don't know, you just get little hints every now and then. It's like meditation, right? Yeah. Where if you get to that place, right? You don't if you know. get to that place, but then you've acknowledged you're in that place, so you you're really not in, in that, that place. place? <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> if you're conscious of it, is it happening, or do you just think it's happening? Right, right. And you can't prove it rationally. You can. It's it's almost a matter of faith. I mean, if you really go down this rabbit hole, faith and reason, science, religion, these elements start to converge because. If you think about what is science, well, it's trial and error. Um, what is a theory? A belief about the world, um, a kind of timeless belief about how things work, and then that timeless belief is you gather evidence to demonstrate it, and then eventually you gather a new piece of evidence which refutes it, and then it's replaced by another timeless belief which is better. You never can fully prove your ideas or your hypotheses. The best you can ever do is either refute them or gather evidence for them. And even if you gather supporting evidence for what you believe to be true, and this applies to scientists in the same way um, applies to entrepreneurs, you might gather a piece of evidence the next day that refutes your long-held theory. This is where the black swan concept came from, the book by Taleb, who, um, Really, the concept comes from a philosopher named Karl Popper, who was an epistemologist, and he had a, a thought experiment in which he said, if you have a theory that all swans are white, and you go out to prove or demonstrate the validity of your theory, you would go out and look at swans. And you'd see maybe white swans here, white swans there. You might do that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Even if you do that for 50 years and you keep finding white swans, you still can't say your theory, all swans are white, is true. Because you can't prove to me that the next day you won't see a non-white swan. However, if you do have the theory that not all swans are white, and then you do discover one non-white swan, you do have 100% proof of the theory. But that just means that we can't make, it's the power of deduction versus induction. You, you, you can't prove a theory to be true. You can only refute a theory with 100% certainty. And that means all theories are tentative and we only grow through the correction of our mistakes. And that applies to um, scientists as well as it applies to um, artists or philosophers. It's the great, the great human con condition is that we grow through these mistakes and the correction of error. But thankfully, 
when we're right about something, even though being right is tentative, and even though it happens one times out of 10, the positive value generated by a correct hit weighs more. Its power and impact is more than the combined weight of nine failures. And it's just a little bit more, but not, you know, it doesn't completely erase them like forever, but it's just a little bit more important. And that's how we build buildings and cities. And that's how we move in a constructive direction. Um, on balance, humanity tends to move forward because of that great human asymmetry, which I think it was uh, Gould, the philosopher who wrote about it in that way. Let's pause for a hot minute for this quick PSA. Are you part of the startup community? If so, keep listening. If not, go ahead and hit the skip ahead button because this is not going to apply to you. The Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast is a property of Raj Nation Innovation. What is Raj Nation Innovation? Well, it's simple. I talk to founders and startup teams every day who flat out tell me, hey, we suck at telling our story. I help remove the suck, combining a unique background of both branding expertise as well as songwriting expertise from my experience as a hip-hop artist, I take a performance lens and mindset to the world of business communication. Using this approach, I partner with growth-focused startups to help them develop their story, their go-to-market message, and their pitch so they can raise venture capital and acquire their early customers. Think of me like the Will Smith character Hitch, but for startups. And yes, I will tell you when you're dancing like an idiot. Does this sound like a conversation we should have? If so, head to www.rajnationinnovation.com. That's R-A-J Nation Innovation.com. Send me a message through there and let's chat. Back now to the podcast. This is just bending my mind into a pretzel right now. <laughs> oh, Go ahead. No, well, so I'm also trying to like connect in my head this back to... The question. Sure. <laughs> um, so learning curve. So, and what I'm, what I feel like I'm kind of getting from you is the idea that because the question being like, how do you, how do you shorten right your your learning curve? And so you're kind of saying by asking questions, discovering yourself, discovering how you process information, how you learn things, sort of all of those things. That that is how. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yes, that yes. that is then how you eventually shorten that learning curve because you can go into anything and say, I know my process for learning. And this thing might be really different than all the other things I know, but I know the way I learn. Mm -hmm. And here's how I can kind of use that. Is that kind yes. of what you mean? Ask yourself, what are the questions I'm trying to answer right now? Mm -hmm. If you don't know what those questions are, create some. Mm -hmm. um, that's how to ensure that you're moving in a direction that's going to steepen your learning curve. Remember, a curve can have many different shapes. It can be the slope, positive, negative, flat. I mean, think of a line on a graph. That's what we're talking about here. We want it to be upwardly trending and steep, not too steep, but constantly moving up. And these questions are the way to push that curve up. If you have 10 questions like we just talked about, you're probably going to be frustrated or for nine of them, they're not going to lead anywhere, but the one that does will outweigh the weight. That's the metaphor I'm using, weight. It's more impactful. The one hit is more impactful than the nine misses. And you're pushing on balance, you're pushing your learning curve in the right direction. But it's a, it's very helpful actually. When I, when I meet entrepreneurs and students, that's one of the questions I often ask. What do you, what questions are you trying to answer right now? Or another way to answer or to ask it is, what projects are you working on right now? What are you working on right now? Just try to get to the heart of like what's keeping them 
focused and keeping their attention right now. And if they don't have anything like that, or if you don't have anything like that, and you care about the development of your learning curve and the, the, the keeping your learning curve moving up, create some. Come up with some questions mm-hmm. that are keeping you going. There are a few things that come to mind for me with this. One of them is the saying I love in the entrepreneurial community, which I don't know if everyone's familiar with it because I just heard about it like a year ago, is fall in love with the problem, not the solution, which I think is one of the best statements any entrepreneur, or just really anyone can embody, is really like care about the problem and the process of getting to the answer. Because if you only care about the end game, you don't have it in you to stick it out long enough to, to get to the end game because if it doesn't come easy well and the solution might change it might not uh-huh, be the solution exactly. you think it's going to be so you have to be so passionate about like about answering the question in whatever that might be mm-hmm. that it, it might take a different form exactly right. exactly and with that you know like this morning i was with a client and you know my whole thing is i work with these startups on their their storytelling and help them figure out how to tell their stories so they can raise capital and whatnot and get customers and I sat there and I was like, as they're going through their stuff, I was like, I don't have the answer yet. And for a second, I was like, ah, I'm supposed to be really good at this. I should have the answer. And then I was like, wait, no. (laughs) I know how I can get to the answer. I know I have a process of getting to the answer. And this really interests me that like, I'm like, this is, I like that I'm being challenged like this, that I'm not just going into every situation knowing, all right, here's what you got to do right away. Because I'm actually listening then to what's being said and taking in the information, not being, uh, not going in blind about, it, like intentionally blind to be like, no, nope, this is this is what it is, no matter what I say. Mm. It's actually liking that. It's liking the discomfort of not knowing, right? It's like it's like I'm confident that through the right steps we'll get to the answer, mm. but it's almost like in that moment where I switch from like, ah, oh, I should know this to wait, no, this is interesting. It's like I get excitement out of knowing that. I can tackle something in a given day that challenges me and isn't just a, it's not just a given that, oh, you know, I just got to type in, I just got to enter these few things and then I have my answer. All right. There's actually a, um, there's a system to have to figure out and then a process by which to, for me to learn and then to be able to, to help them learn. I find it useful to think about the relationship between problems and solutions as very much like the relationship between demand and supply. There, there needs to be a kind of balance, um, and many times one side is heavier than the other. Sometimes they're out of balance, and that just means there's a need for one or the other. If all you have is problems and no solutions are forthcoming, that's an imbalance. But if you have solutions where there are no problems, that's another kind of imbalance. And it's, um, it's not helpful. It's not very constructive. And we can take problems and solutions and map them onto questions and answers, um, just like we can um, supply, demand and supply. It, it's, there's, a, there's an underlying logic there that applies to um, this system that you're talking about and the tension that exists between the two sides. Um, Related to this, we were talking about the history of Western thought and the Western Academy earlier with, with Plato and Socrates and the way we teach and so forth. But in on the other side of the world, let's say, take it from an Eastern sort of uh, foundation, the word problem and the word question 
In English, we distinguish between the two. In Chinese, it's one word. Wen ti is the word used for problem, and it's also the word used for question. There is no distinction. And I think, in my mind, I actually tend to think as, of problems more as questions. I think it's a much more constructive, better way for me to, to think about um, that, 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 that entity, that ontological entity. And, and so if you, but you can think about it in a lot of different ways. It actually explains things because um, in their tradition of teaching in the academy and universities, it's not Socratic method. All of that comes from Confucius. And in the Confucian tradition, the teacher speaks, the students listen. It's basically it. Is there a discourse? It's, just there, it's not. There's not a lot of um, raised hands and challenging. There's not a lot of questions put to the students and then back and forth. Um, because think about it. If you're in class and you raise your hand and you say in English, I have a problem, it's different than saying, I have a question. And so the, the ontological status of what we're talking about has shifted a little bit in that tradition. And I, I find that personally very useful. I, I think the word problem can have a little bit of a negative connotation. Um, and I like to think of it in terms of a question because it is. You have an unanswered aspect of your experience at that point that needs to be uh, remedied with a, with a solution or an answer. It doesn't matter. But that, that balance between the two is, is important. And focusing on solutions leads to comfort, but it also leads to a, a static kind of stability in your life. Focusing on questions and problems is the way to move away from comfort, but it's also the way to move toward development. But then we, we do fall into that instance that we've talked about already a couple of times in which you're probably only gonna be right one time out of 10. And, uh, but that's okay if you remember that you keep moving and asking questions and the, the impact of the one will always outweigh the impact of the nine. Well, and that's something that I think on an emotional level, more people need to become comfortable with being wrong. Or at least be, not comfortable, at least being okay with being wrong. And I think, I'm sure as an educator you see this a lot because I remember in classes always seeing this and getting so frustrated with it. So let's say you're giving a lecture of some kind, a student raises their hand and you'll say, okay, you know, go ahead. And they'll say, oh, I was just gonna say that. And then they'll go ahead and say the thing that they were just gonna say. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, oh, I was just going to say that I saw this show that said something similar to this and they were saying something different. As right? opposed to saying, I saw this show. Right. And, and everyone does this and it frustrates me so much because it's like you're saying it, so don't preface that you're saying it. But I think inherently, this is my own uh, hypothesis, inherently it, we, we default to that or we lean on that because it detaches us from ownership of the thing we're about to say. So rather than having it as a firm opinion or making it, making it your claim, you're like, oh, I was just going to say it, but I'm not really saying it. It's just, it's just what I was going to say. So if you are, it protects you from being wrong. It protects your ego. Yeah. There's a, there's a balancing act as, as civilization evolves. Um, if you think about civilized society, where, where we were thousands of years ago, perhaps, compared to today, um, that trial and error method that I was talking about, the, the, the natural selection, almost Darwinian thing that we're talking about, that's, 
that's the rule of, of life and death in an absolute sense. If you remove civilization and just think about living things, competing to survive, that's it. As we, as society, human society becomes more and more civilized, in general, it's good, right? Because like I say, that whole development process grows by the, the one out of 10 correct hits. And you know, we construct things, we build things. One of the byproducts of that is exactly what you're talking about. We try to protect, whether it's ego or feelings or emotions, we try to protect that or insulate those aspects of ourselves. But we just need to remember to be careful to not do it in a way that erases the growth of knowledge. Because the growth of knowledge still follows the same rules as the laws of the jungle. It's brutal, it's bloody, it's murderous. Today, we treat people, we should treat people oppositely from how we treat ideas. If you're an entrepreneur or a scientist, it doesn't matter. If you have a new idea and you think it may have potential, you want to get with it for a while and hang out with it and see where things go. Well, you do that with an idea and if the idea changes on you and you suddenly discover it's not what you expected, you kick it out of your house. You expel it from your life. That's opposite from how we should treat people. If you get married to somebody and they change, you know, maybe they, they gain weight or they become less desirable than they originally were, you have a commitment to that person at that point to stay with them and love them and treat them well and not give up on them just because they changed. And that's good for civilization, it's good for the human condition, but don't let that approach generalize over into the realm of ideas. You need to keep that realm very tough, very brutal, and when something doesn't work, a bad idea, you discover that an idea that you had is bad, you need to kick it out immediately. Because if you marry a bad idea, it'll take you down with it. Um, people are different. And what I find with entrepreneurs especially is they sometimes struggle with separating or drawing a line between people and ideas. A bad person can have a great idea. A good person can have a terrible idea. And when you discuss and you brainstorm, it's important to direct your ire and your, your fire and your, your critical spirit toward the idea side of things, not the person side of things. And as the, the presenter of an idea, it's important to remember not to take that critical message personally, apply it to the idea, but both sides in that kind of um, discussion have a responsibility to do it in the right way and to focus everything on the ideas. That's a good way to you know, keep that good, tough law of um, that evolutionary law of natural selection in the idea space, in the conceptual space, not in the people space. Very important, I think. And it's a big part of how I teach entrepreneurship. Maybe that's where the person presenting the idea could say, oh, I was just gonna say that I had this idea, <laughs> therefore they aren't so attached to it. And the idea can be, it's that philosophy of attack the problem, not the person, ultimately, yeah. right? Yes. Um, Victoria, I'm curious to know, because you have an engineering background, mm -hmm. and I always find engineer minds fascinating because it's all about process and creating zeros and ones out of everything and like yes and no out of everything. So given that that's your background and you are an educator in yoga, teaching yoga every day, how do you, A, do you apply engineering to yoga? And if so, like... How does that manifest itself? 
Um, yes and no. I mean, I think I think the reason that I chose to study engineering in college and the type that I specifically did, which was like operations research um, and sort of information engineering, was because that's already like it. It was a major that I felt embodied my personality. Like I was already, you know, in middle school, I was like you know, have these crazy binders of the ways that I organized things. And I've just always been like that. And that's, so that was just how my personality worked. And I was like, Ooh, I could do a major that's all like this. You know, I, I literally still have my statistics binder as I like loved it so much. It was so perfect, whatever. Um, and so I loved, I loved that. I loved the order, the order in everything and how like this thing leads to this thing. And then this, and then this, and it was always this nice, you know, and I, so I think there's a part of me that still probably does that in everything that I do, yoga and otherwise, but it's hard with yoga because there's also an element of things needing to be kind of more malleable and fluid. Like when you see something going awry or it not working, you need to be able to like pivot really quickly. And maybe actually, maybe I do your you know, sort of use those techniques then to be like, okay, this isn't working. So now this, um, so th there might be a bit of that, but I don't know. I wouldn't say that I go into it with, with like necessarily that mindset, but it might just kind of like be there lingering in the background because, because I don't feel like I went into engineering and like learned necessarily how to think that way. I mean, it kind of did, but I already like, think of things in that sense. Does that make, does that make no, sense? No, yeah, that's, I think that's kind of what I was getting at, was like the mindset. So then maybe I do, but I don't know, but maybe I don't know because I maybe don't know how you think that. of it. <laughs> yeah. But I definitely, I guess like there is a part of me that like I crave structure and I crave sort of that, you know, step by step by step. So maybe in a sense, my yoga classes are kind of like that because that's what I crave. Well, when but I, I try it, really hard to like. Yeah, you know, but when I think about it, it's you know you talked about liking the order, the structure, and mm -hmm. stuff like, like a yoga class has to have order and structure totally. to it. Otherwise, it's, people are going to feel terrible when they leave. <laughs> yeah. And yes, you need to be malleable within that. But it's like okay, maybe it's, I it's do. Still a lot of if then relationships, <laughs> totally. and then it's like if you have an if then here, it gets you, to, you know, three levels down this path, ultimately to get back to the main track you were on. Totally. And talking about order and step by step and whatnot. Do you remember what vinyasa means? What do you, what, like, like, you like what's the translation places. of vinyasa? Tell me. Arrange in a special way. Yeah. And that's oh, I get what you're Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I wasn't quite sure where we were going with this. So I was like a little nervous to say what I was thinking. Okay. Got it. Yes. Yeah. So that's exactly what you're doing is, right? You're arranging in a special way, which is really yeah. what engineering is at the end of the day, right? It's taking all these different pieces and arranging them in a special way to create a unified output, to create a yeah. machine, more or yeah. less. Yeah. Might there's, be easier for someone to see that on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> there's also a kind of arbitrage effect here. Um, as I listen to you talk about that, you know, a lot of our best contributors as scholars or philosophers or thinkers started out in, a, in one domain and then they moved into another. Um, so, for example, in my field, I have a PhD in management, and the early scholars in my field came mostly from sociology, but some of them were physical scientists, and they described the way that elements relate to one another, or the way that many members of a population will behave when they're all grouped together in different environments. And so the one I just mentioned, for instance, yielded what's called this... Um, 
population ecology approach to understanding organizational life, given the context, given the number of people, the density, and what each one was like, it was a kind of macro view to explain organizational performance. Um, it was basically a bunch of programmed uh, dumb actors, if you will, that followed certain rules and just sort of interacted with one another. And some of the early, as I say, management, 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 management scholars borrowed from other areas and then made contributions mm -hmm. to a particular field. And I think that happens a lot in many different ways. Um, another way it happens is in entrepreneurship. By and large, immigrant populations the proportion of entrepreneurial activity in those populations in a given country is far higher than in the domestic population. And many times it's because of that arbitrage effect. They have a unique, more unique background than the local population, which means they have the personal lens and the background like we were talking about earlier that is somewhat unique. And they bring a unique solution to an existing problem which lends itself to a kind of unique mm -hmm. entrepreneurial approach to something. And, and so I'm, I'm always very intrigued by individuals who start out in one field and then move to another because that usually means they're onto something and they've found a unique um, application of um, domain expertise to a new setting. Well, it's interesting because I, so background in engineering, I worked in supply chain for, for almost five years. And then I was like, I need a different challenge. And so I, I worked for Pepsi and I transitioned to um, do a year in marketing, which was like completely out of my wheelhouse. I had no idea what I was doing, but, you know, dropped me in the deep end and, you know, figured it out, whatever. Ultimately, after that year, I, I just, I knew I wanted to go off and kind of do, do my own thing. So I'm doing yoga and my blog and, and sort of, you know, starting this, this new, new life and new career. But so many times I've had people ask me, well, do you think you'll ever go back to engineering? And I'm like, well, it's not that I left engineering or that I'm, you know, I, or, or that I like forgot how to think critically. You know? <laughs> I mean, I didn't like lose that. I, you know, I don't only know how to do yoga now. I mean, I can still do these other things and I can apply them to a lot of things in life. And it's just, it's so funny because people say that and I'm like, well, but I mean, maybe I'll go back to that, but probably not exactly that. It'll probably be something different but I'll still use these great skills that I learned and the things that I'm passionate about, you know, I'll just sort of direct them in a different way. And so I, I think it's so interesting, especially, especially because you also so many times are told in college or around college, like, oh, it doesn't matter what you study, you'll end up doing something different anyways. And then after the fact, people are like, but you're not doing what you studied. Why aren't you doing it? Which one is it? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's it, it seems to me that an engineer who moves into yoga would have a certain approach to problems that's informed by her background and experience and she would try mm -hmm. she would err she would find what works she would find what doesn't work mm -hmm. and she would build a unique approach to the to performance in that domain you know it's when i when i teach this stuff to entrepreneurs typically who are trying to build and grow a venture um I think it's useful to take this learning curve concept and apply it to the entrepreneurial venture itself because entrepreneurship is defined by growth. If whatever you're talking about is not growth oriented, it's not entrepreneurial. It always has to have some sort of question about the future. And if that question is answered correctly or 
in, in, a, in a way that has utility, the venture itself is going to grow. It will have more customers or more impact or more employees or all of those things. And there are ways in which you can lead a venture very much in the same way that you lead your own life that um, encourages this process of trial and error and asking questions as a means to grow. Now, if we, if we just reflect on that for a moment, um, it becomes clear that we only grow through the correction of our mistakes. You have to make mistakes in order to grow. Error occurs all around growth. Children grow. They grow out of clothes. What do you do with those clothes that don't fit them anymore? That's a kind of error. Trees grow. They shed their leaves every year. Snakes grow. They shed their skin. Uh, clothes, leaves, skin. It's all error in a biological, natural world sense. But in that domain, we understand that waste is energy or waste is food. In the entrepreneurial realm, it should be intriguing to the entrepreneur to commit those errors and then put boundaries around the costs associated with those errors and use the error as a discovery engine because that's how you learn how to correct error and that's how you learn to grow and be adaptable. That's pretty philosophical, but the way that I teach it, I, 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 it's a very practical approach to conducting your life this way. I call it the existential edge. And Wait, let me see if I remember it. Uh, reasoned success combined with unreasonable risk. It's something like that, right? Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I think you were in that seminar seven years, six, eight, six years ago. Six years ago. Yeah. Very impressed. Um, good memory. Not quite right, but. I can tell that you remember the concept. Um, so the, the concept is basically that, well, it has, first of all, it has ready fire aim built into it. It's really important to make a decision that has embedded in that decision a solution to some problem that has a future orientation. And, and so you should publicly declare, for instance, that you will, you know, achieve 20% revenue growth by this exact date next year and make a public declaration about, well, here's the question, will we do it or not? Yes, we will. You're either gonna be wrong or right, um, but the most important thing is that you fire an answer at that question before you know if you're going to hit it or not. And the, the, the really simple example I always use to talk about this is uh, Babe Ruth called shot which Babe Ruth from the New York Yankees playing against the Chicago Cubs way back in the 30s. Um, he's at bat, and as the story goes, the Yankees are down by a run or two, the bases are loaded, Babe Ruth is at bat, it's full count, and at that moment, he points at the center field wall. He just did what I was talking about when the entrepreneur makes a bold declaration about performance in the future. Um, in, in doing that, he could have kept his determination private and it would have had a totally different effect. It would have had a very minimal effect. But by making it public, by pointing at the wall as if to say, I'm telling all of you who can see me that on the next pitch, I'm going to hit the ball over the fence at that particular area, he put himself on what I call the existential edge. The middle ground in terms of the range of options has been removed from 
the whole range of possible options. He's either going to look like a genius or he's going to look like a fool, one or the other. If he strikes out, he's going to look like a fool. If he hits it, he's going to look like a genius. This is where the, the one time out of ten comes in. Usually people don't make it. If they do make a hit, a correct hit, the weight that comes back from that is, is huge. If they make a mistake, it may burn a little bit. It may be a little bit of a you know discomfort, but it'll pass. And so the existential edge holds that basically you, you know, you can't write your own obituary. You you got to just put it out there and hope that it turns out the way you want it to. And, and so in this case, as the story goes, he did make a hit. They won the game, but more than that, newspapers wrote about that. There was a movie about it. We're talking about it now. That's where the uncertainty around the ramifications of success comes in. He never would have been able to predict that we would be here talking about it now or the movie or the book. But a lot of people have learned a lot about thinking about it in that way. Had he failed, that's where we can say the ramifications of failure are bounded by risk. Risk and uncertainty are different. Uncertainty, you can't put a probability distribution around it. With risk, you can. And when you can do that, you can predict in an educated way what might happen. It's like going to a horse race. You know the, the jockey, you know the horse, you know their records, you know the conditions. With all those variables, you can make a kind of prediction equation about the future. Uncertainty is if you go to the horse race and you can't find the horse. You just didn't, that never entered into your expectation <laughs> about the future. Your success hits are bounded by that uncertainty logic. You don't know what they're gonna lead to, but that's good, because it can be frame-breaking in that way. With risk and failure, you're dealing with things you can predict more easily than success, and that's useful information. You can predict failure, and you can therefore run the risk of committing a failure because you probably are going to know what's going to happen. You're probably going to be able to do something about it, therefore. And you don't have to bet the farm when you make these existential edge decisions. I do it all the time in my office. I hear footsteps. I hear my colleagues walking around the halls. I've been there long enough that I think I know the patterns of the sounds of their footsteps. So I think I know who's coming before I see them. This is a game I play with myself. When I hear somebody enter my office, I call out with a highly personalized greeting to them. If it's my, if it's my, my, my buddy that I jive with all the time, I might call out with a sort of informal, teasing, sort of mocking, what's up, Granny Goose, or you know, something <laughs> like that. If it's my senior colleague who's been there for 40 years, who's like a, like a grandparent to me, I probably wouldn't call it out in that way. I'd, I'd say, oh, hello, Mildred. Hey, hi. Okay, before I see them, I can do that in two different settings. If I get it wrong, I'm gonna be embarrassed, <laughs> right? If she comes in and I give that sort of uh, sassy greeting, she's gonna think I'm weird or something. But if I get it right, my friend is going to say, can you see around corners, man? And I'll say, I can, I can. The weight of that one hit, they'll remember. Um, the little mistakes, uh, they tend to forget. And so you, you, in other words, as an entrepreneur, you can do this with decisions throughout your day, throughout your week, and you can build a business on the back of those existential edge decisions. You don't have to bet the farm. What you need to do is find a way to make mistakes and make them as quickly and as small as possible and keep making them because that's how you know the kid is growing because you keep having those clothes that don't fit anymore. With that, 
let's switch directions, shift gears for a second here uh, and talk about what you're working on now. So you are a entrepreneurship professor at DePaul. I believe you recently won Entrepreneurship Professor of the Year. Was that the award? I did. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, you've written a book in your past, Mutiny and Its Bounty, and now you even teach a class based off your own book. <laughs> But your new initiative you have coming up is actually with um, University of Illinois at Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. Not with them. Urbana-Champaign. Oh, sorry. UIUC. Oh, okay. At Urbana-Champaign, which is an entrepreneurship initiative. Um, so let our listeners know, you know, it's an entrepreneurship class, but let our listeners know why it's about more than just an entrepreneurship class. Sure. So some of the things I'm talking about here will be reflected in the class. There, there's going to be a lot of... Uh, practical approaches and elements there, but you'll, you'll feel a lot of the same concepts that I'm talking about right now. UIUC approached me and asked me if I would teach their entrepreneurship seminar in their MBA program. And they have a very innovative MBA in that they partnered with Coursera a couple of years ago and put their entire program online. And it's called the IMBA. And it's been a big hit for them. It's a really successful program. But I've really enjoyed working with the team down there to put a lot of my own entrepreneurship principles and concepts into this course. And we've recorded videos, we've had interviews with entrepreneurs in Chicago at a variety of different locations. Um, we're recreating my slides and my concepts into a online graphical sort of dynamic approach. And that'll be launching in August. It's open to the world. Um, there, there is a set of um, tuition paying students in the course, but it, it's also a MOOC. And Hundreds of thousands of and people. MOOC stands for, for those who don't know? Massive online open course. Massive open online course. Um, Something like that. Open, yeah, <laughs> open to the world. <laughs> and um, I, I know a lot of people are starting to learn in that way. Like we were talking about earlier with technology, a lot of it is social now. And this is an example of how knowledge is being promulgated and disseminated through technology. And people are connecting with one another in ways... People are connecting with other people that they wouldn't have been able to connect with years years ago. So the, the profile of how knowledge grows at a societal level is, is changing, and I'm happy to be a part of that. I am still teaching the Mutiny course based on my book, um, and that, that's going really well. The, it's not a very fun book to read. It's a research monograph, basically, that I wrote for Yale University Press. It came out in 2013, and um, we went back 500 years to the age of discovery when seafarers like Henry Hudson, Magellan, Sebastian Cabot, Christopher Columbus were undertaking ventures at sea, which ran that same risk of failure, 9 out of 10 versus the 1. I mean, the same uh, ratio. Much more applied. dire consequences. <laughs> yeah, the, the consequences were physical, and it's... It's very interesting, and if the modern parallel is space exploration, if you think about who's doing that right now, Branson, Musk, Bezos, ventures oriented toward what we think now, or what feels to us as an infinite domain. Well, that's the way humanity looked at the ocean 600 years ago. It's very similar in many different ways, and so we can get a lot of insights into things that the human experience is incurring right now. And then uh, the, the last big thing I'm doing this summer is I'm, I'm going to the Middle East in July. I'm teaching an entrepreneurship seminar at the Bahrain Institute of Banking and Finance. And then I'll be in Greece after that. So I'll be out for a month, but I'll, I'll be doing a lot of my work while I'm traveling. Right on. And in the 
mutiny class. It's a Socratic-based class in the sense that it's just a discussion circle, pretty much, right? Read a yeah. chapter and discuss. It's like a book club. It's like a book club. <laughs> we we read the book, and like I said, it is not a fun page-turning book, but every individual gets what they can in unique ways out of it. And then when they come and share what their unique takeaway is with the rest of the group, the knowledge of the whole group grows as a result. So it is an extremely discussion-based seminar. Where can our listeners find you, get in touch with you? Profpjm.com, if you're interested in my publications and my research. Um, Profpjm on Twitter um, and elsewhere. I'm really easy to find through the, the magic of Google. Uh, <laughs> All right, so then to bring it back to our main topic for the day, which is how do you improve your learning curve? We'll go one by one around the room to give our answer based on this discussion, if we can boil it down to <laughs> one single answer for each of us, starting with Victoria, and then we'll close with you, Professor Murphy. Victoria, how do you improve your learning curve? Well, I think based on this discussion, improving your learning curve can happen by asking questions, not just surface level questions, but kind of getting to know yourself a little deeper and understanding your process for learning. And I think that once you understand your process for learning, that learning curve in general improves. My answer for how do you improve your learning curve, it's gonna be an amalgam of a few different things here, but it's, it's, a, it's rooted in the idea of figuring out your own process by which to take in information and retain it, but the only, I mean, really the way to do that is to be willing to be exposed to tons of different types of information and different ways to learn so you can settle in on what is your best style. And then I think another thing that works well with that, which I know I've, I've generally found this to help me, is if you were to look at something and then ask yourself, if I had to teach this to someone else, how would I teach it to them? That's a great way to figure out how do you want to learn and how, how can you take in the information yourself. Because generally, and as we all know, the best way to reinforce your knowledge is to share it. So if you figure out how you could how you would what you would do to go about teaching something to someone else, it I think greatly improves your own learning curve. Professor Murphy, how do you improve your learning curve? Train yourself to be comfortable with big unanswered questions and then carry a few of those at least around with you all the time. Uh, reflect on what's important to you and find out what is truly important to you and embed that into your questions. And then when you seek to answer your questions, remember that your knowledge only grows and therefore your learning curve only accelerates and gets steeper. Knowledge, as it were, only grows through the correction of error. Fantastic. Well, every time you're on this show, which is twice now, we get a vocabulary lesson. This time it was evolve means unroll. The first time you were on the show, it was that charisma means divine flavor. <laughs> Sorry, good memory. Uh, we, this time we got uh, some uh, lessons in Chinese as well. What was the word again? When tea. And that means both problem question. and question. I'm so. totally switching out. I've got a question instead of a problem. <laughs> I have a problem. Uh, all in all, it's always a good chat with you. Philosophy is involved. I feel like we should have had like glasses of whiskey with us during this. But thank you for joining us, Dr. Professor Patrick Murphy. My pleasure. Thank you. It was a really joy to talk with both of you today. 
That wrapped up our conversation with Professor Patrick Murphy. Professor Murphy, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Always, honestly, like a a nice philosophical conversation whenever we get a chance to talk. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the best compliment you can give us is a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews help more people find the show, and therefore more people get to discover their inner awesome. While you're leaving that review, go ahead and subscribe to the show on whatever platform it is that you listen, whether it is iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, or the various other podcasting platforms you can find this show. For full show notes, references, and resources discussed in this episode, as well as Professor Murphy's contact information, you can grab it all at www.discoveryourinnerawesome.com. That'll do it for this one. Thank you again to Professor Patrick Murphy for joining us. For Victoria Cohen, I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today. Awesome.